Welcome to the Weird History Podcast. I'm Joe Streckert. This is an independent, listener-supported show. To support it, go to weirdhistorypodcast.com. Hello, everyone. I am back. If you're wondering where I was last week, a good friend of mine was getting married, and weddings have this pernicious way of taking priority over everything else that you might be doing. So because of, you know, real life, I was not able to talk about the Korean War in about 20 minutes. But this week, the Korean War in about 20 minutes. Uh, I'm not going to give you a blow-by-blow account of the war. Um, I like military history well enough when other people do it. But I think what is more important is to find out why it's important. And later on, when we talk about North Korean propaganda, the war is going to show up again and again. So it's good to get a picture of it, but I'm not going to get into the nitty-gritty of what all the badass combat hardware did. There are other podcasts for that. Anyway, the Korean War was not supposed to be a prolonged conflict. Nearly everyone involved thought that it would be over and done quickly and easily. The Soviets thought that the United States wouldn't care enough about Korea to do anything. Stalin just figured that Kim Il-sung would attack the South, take back the rest of the peninsula, and America would kind of shrug. The United States thought that communist forces would recoil in terror and run away at the first show of real resistance. But what was supposed to be a quick blip of a conflict turned into a war that dragged on for over three years. And the final part of it was just this long, slogging, stalemate where neither side really did any real territory taking. And this was also a big deal. It involved over 20 countries. It was kind of a miniature world war in that way. And uh, it's the only conflict of the Cold War where Western, Chinese, and Soviet forces actually exchanged fire at each other. Now, when we last left Korea, Southern forces had been beaten back to a small area of land in the southeastern part of the peninsula, just around Busan. A northern victory looked imminent. However, the United Nations was on the way and scheduled to land at Incheon, just outside of Seoul. Leading the UN forces, which were overwhelmingly American, over 80% American, was General Douglas MacArthur, who had very recently commanded American forces in the Pacific theater of World War II. On his way to Korea, MacArthur very much assumed a home-by-Christmas kind of situation. He was one of the parties who thought this was going to be quick and easy, especially because MacArthur did not count on intervention by China or by the Soviet Union. And, for a moment, it looked like that was going to be the case. When UN forces landed at Incheon, they did so with a bang, and very quickly ended up taking back most of the southern part of the peninsula. By September of 1950, UN forces had restored Sigmund Rhee's government in Seoul. And that's incredible. Uh, Sigmund Rhee's government had only very recently had to flee the capital. By the end of the month, MacArthur got permission from Washington to proceed north of the 38th parallel. And UN forces crossed into communist territory and brought the war to Kim Il-sung. This time, it would be the North's turn to retreat and stare annihilation in the face. 
UN and South Korean forces beat back the North to nearly the Yalu River, and many North Korean troops were crossing into China where they could find shelter and fresh supplies. And because of this, because so many of the Northerners kept going back into China to get resupplied, MacArthur was eager to keep his winning streak going and to pursue the North into Chinese territory. Truman, however, told him no. And this conflict between MacArthur and Truman was considerable. Crossing the Yalu River could have meant war with China, and Truman decided, probably wisely, that maybe committing an act of war against a major world power was a bad idea. MacArthur, for his part, was absolutely furious that he was not able to move up through the Korean peninsula and then effectively declare war on China. Nevertheless, right about now, in the autumn of 1950, it looks like North Korea is about to be wiped from the face of the earth. However, there were a few things that MacArthur and UN forces didn't count on. The first was that George Kennan had a lot of really intelligent things to say about the communist mind and how, you know, the Soviet Union would act, but it was not universally applicable to all communist powers. And his whole contention that communist forces would immediately recoil like a scared turtle at any show of force didn't turn out to be totally accurate. Because there was far more intervention by China and by the Soviet Union than anyone planned for. In fact, seeing this show of United States and United Nations forces, instead of recoiling, the Soviet Union and China, they upped their game. As the UN and South Korean forces pushed northward, China and the Soviet Union responded by giving North Korea not just funds and supplies and weapons, but by giving them real military support. By the end of 1950, China was actively sending ground troops across the Yalu River to reinforce the North. Now, the Chinese government never officially committed troops to Korea. The Chinese forces that ended up fighting alongside the North Koreans were technically volunteers just going there to help their brethren in Korea because they felt like it. And this fiction was a fig leaf to avoid any kind of international incident or escalation between the United States and China. So we have plenty of Chinese ground forces that joined the fight, and in early 1951, the Soviet Union sent in air power, though not ground forces, into Chinese-controlled airspace. So, suddenly, you had American and Soviet combat forces on opposite sides of a shooting war only a little over five years after the end of World War II, where they had recently been allies. Both American and Soviet sources kept quiet about Soviet logistical support and about Soviet air support in the Korean War. Both the United States and the Soviet Union had a vested interest in not making this look like America and the USSR were suddenly shooting at each other. The Soviet-controlled state press and the American, just American press, kept this very, very quiet. Making this look like the beginning of World War III was not in anyone's best interest. 
This intervention by China and by the Soviet Union made a difference. In the early half of 1951, northern forces pushed southward once again and took back most of what had been North Korean territory. Around this time, early 1951, there was a first attempt at a ceasefire. That fell apart. And in the face of this pushback from North Korean, Chinese, and Soviet forces, General Douglas MacArthur advocated for the U.S. to crack out the nukes in the Korean War. And then Truman relieved him of his command. There were a lot of reasons for this firing. It wasn't just because MacArthur was kind of a gung-ho, blood-and-guts crazy person who wanted to use nukes, but the general and the president disagreed on matters like military spending, and who even got to use nuclear weapons. Uh, MacArthur believed that, hey, they were part of his arsenal, he was a general, and if he wanted to order a nuclear strike, he could. Truman, though, contended that that power, the power to launch weapons that can pretty much destroy the world as we know it, rested with the president and the president alone. MacArthur had also not counted on Chinese and Soviet intervention in the war until it actually happened. And when it did indeed make a difference, his home-by-Christmas strategy totally fell apart. And Truman was furious at MacArthur's failure in the face of unexpected Chinese and Soviet intervention. That and Truman and MacArthur just hated each other as people. In October of 1950, they met on Wake Island to discuss the war, and MacArthur declined to salute the president or eat lunch with him. Truman was also personally offended by MacArthur's hat, which he apparently said looked like it hadn't been washed in about 20 years. Years later, Time Magazine would quote Truman as saying the following, quote, I fired him because he wouldn't respect the authority of the president. I didn't fire him because he was a dumb son of a bitch, although he was. But that's not against the law for generals. If it was, half to three quarters of them would be in jail. Unquote. By the way, um, apparently Truman had something of a temper. He kept an anger journal. He wrote about, like, all the terrible things that he thought about people and wanted to do to them, and then put his journal in a drawer. Yeah. Anyway, by 1951, the Korean War had settled into a long stalemate, and the front lines ossified into a border that would become the modern demilitarized zone. After 1951, again, there's no real taking or retaking of territory. There's just this kind of mutual siege happening, with neither side really gaining much on the other. It turned into the opposite of the home-by-Christmas strategy. And throughout 1953 and 1954, northern and southern diplomats met at a village called Panmunjom. If you've ever seen pictures of the Korean demilitarized zone, you've seen pictures of Panmunjom. I've been there. You can take tours of it. And they worked out what would become a deal for a ceasefire. Eventually, a UN commission of neutral countries, led by India, made that ceasefire official. Not a treaty, not a surrender, just a ceasefire. The two Koreas would stop shooting. They would exchange prisoners. But that would basically be it. There was nothing about stopping the war. They just stopped firing their guns. Neither country recognized the other. The leaders didn't really shake hands. And, 
Later on, North Korean propaganda would say it was a surrender. They would characterize it as a victory, even though no one won the Korean War. At the end of it, over a million people were dead. Hundreds of thousands of more were wounded. Cities like Seoul and Pyongyang were in ruins. And Korea was still divided, with borders that looked a lot like the borders that the peninsula had in early 1950, just before the start of the war. North Korea now, after the war, would be a fact of life for South Korea, the Soviet Union, China, Japan, everyone. It would eventually become a real-life dystopia, a place where the quality of life for the average person is by no means acceptable by any reasonable standard. But in the 1950s, North Korea would have a good couple of years. The early part of the Cold War would be the heyday for North Korea, and for a time, they would be considered the more advanced and better off half of the newly divided Korean peninsula. As always, this is a listener-supported podcast. Couldn't do it without you? Go to weirdhistorypodcast.com to become a monthly supporter. Thank you to all of you who do that. Uh, We are on iTunes. Give us ratings and reviews, stars, words. Give us five stars. Talk about how awesome the podcast is. And that actively helps other people find it. You see podcasts in iTunes because those podcasts get reviews. So please go do that. And thank you to everybody who has left an iTunes review. I'm on social media. I'm on Twitter, at Joe Streckert. I am also on Facebook, facebook.com slash Weird History Podcast. Thank you all for listening. Talk to you next time. Bye. (laughs) 